Welcome back to the series In and Out of the Fray. We are so delighted to be welcoming Mayor of Aurora, Colorado, Mike Kaufman today. Mayor Kaufman, thank you so much for being with us on SMT. We wanted to bring you on the show to speak to you about what you brought back with you after having spent a week among the homeless community in Aurora. Sure. Well, actually, it was uh, I was in Aurora and Denver. More of a focus in Denver than Aurora. Mayor Hancock had reached out to me in uh, 2020 about working jointly uh, on a on a policy that would affect both cities, and so I I didn't feel like I understood the issue, and so uh, um, I ended up. Um, unfortunately, there was a, a the first uh, encampment that I wanted to stay in. Had I should have checked before I went there. It was in Aurora had been swept. Uh, then I stayed in the Day Resource Center. I spent my first night at the Anschutz Medical Campus in a parking garage. And then um, the next day I went to uh, the Day Resource Center. And, and then after that, uh, that night I spent in a shelter in Aurora. Uh, from that point forward, then I, I went into Denver. And uh, I think I spent about, um, I stayed in three, let's see, I'm sorry, two different shelters in Denver and walked around the encampments during the day and then ended up staying in one encampment for two nights. And when, you know, when you were undercover, you were you describing that uh, some of the differences in the atmosphere between the encampments and the shelter. Um, what would you, uh, how would you describe that difference? So would you say that the encampments were mostly younger people? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, unfortunately, again, I didn't uh, have the opportunity to, to spend time in an encampment in Aurora. They seem to be much smaller in Aurora, seem to be much larger in Denver, and yes, a much younger population uh, in the encampments in Denver. Um, I think the, the most surprising thing was that the encampment population and the shelter population never mixed, that they were two completely separate universes, and um, people in, in shelters never went to encampments, and people in encampments never went to shelters. Uh, I think there were three categories in the encampments. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the shelters, uh, one, there were people that were economically displaced uh, because of COVID. Uh, the lockdowns had just uh, previously taken effect, and there were a lot of uh, people that had been dislocated from their jobs, and particularly people that uh, cleaned houses, as an example, that the public health officials came down and said, you shouldn't have uh, non-filming members in your house. And so a lot of them lost um, their employment and as a result couldn't pay rent and wound up in the shelter system. The, so there were people that were, had been sort of there for economic reasons. There are a lot of people that were been chronically homeless for a long time uh, in the shelter system that were, uh, a lot of them suffered drug and alcohol issues, probably more alcohol than drug. And uh, older than the encamp, much older than the encampment population, by and large. Uh, and then there were people um, that were mentally ill, that were, um, you know, I'm certainly not a mental health professional, but it just seemed that schizophrenia uh, among the mentally ill seemed to be common, if I understand that diagnosis, that people would be talking to themselves, uh, fighting off imaginary, you know, evil things. And never really interacting uh, with others, uh, and they were just had enough, were functional enough where they could navigate the shelter system to get have a place to sit to sleep and have some food. Um, 
those people that were clearly there were economic casualties were ready to move on. Mm-hmm. The people that were uh, mentally ill had, you know, were just, I mean, were not self-aware uh, in terms of uh, where they were. And then the, what I, the big middle in terms of the chronically homeless, uh, um, I think that um, a, a lot of them had applied and received disability, or I don't mm-hmm. know a lot, but it seemed to be a goal of receiving disability, but uh, not a big desire to move on uh, in that population. So it's a, it's a very tough issue to deal with. I think in the, um, uh, in the encampments, um, you know, people developed interdependent bonds with each other. Mm-hmm. They, um, a lot of drug use, unfortunately, a lot of crystal methamphetamine, some heroin, um, you know, not marijuana or you know hallucinogenic drugs or anything like that pretty 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 tough um drugs and uh um you know they, they seem to be trapped in the world that they're in and uh you know with little desire to move on in my own one-on-one dealings with various homeless youth it was just my own personal experience that younger individuals who were homeless faced different challenges and I get the sense from watching your interviews that the older populations tend to have things, you know, like the Medicaid and disability. And even the vets do have, um, from what I think they have some vet benefits, um, whereas the people in their late teens and early 20s aren't old enough to qualify for such support. And I was just wondering if anyone has taken this into consideration, creating supports that might be more specialized for those uh, younger people. You know, I think there is some discussion. I think there's concern among that are, you know, to what extent are people that have aged out of the foster system that have no familial ties, that do they, to what extent are they winding up uh, on the streets? Um, veterans have a very robust uh, network of support. So they're incredibly easy to deal with in terms of uh, moving forward should they want to because they have. We have access to a lot of VA services. They have access to HUD, what we call HUD VASH vouchers uh, for housing. And so there are um, a, a tremendous amount of benefits uh, for veterans who, who desire to uh, move out of homelessness. And so, but that are not available to, to the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. Did you encounter vets uh, in, your, in your experience uh, undercover? I really didn't encounter um, too many, um, I, and, and we have in fact tried to have a uh, we have a homeless um, a veterans uh, pilot program that I that I worked on along with Adams County Commissioner Steve uh, Tedesco, and um, the contractors really struggled uh, to find veterans and, and to be able to fill the slots in the program, and the the fact is that. Uh, um, we have an expansive uh, definition. We used a HUD definition for homelessness, which is housing insecure. Uh, and, and we couldn't, um, you know, we found that uh, unfortunately the contractor had been taking some veterans from other programs <laughs> where they were being helped in other programs just to fill the numbers. So I, I think that probably the issue for veterans is is somewhat exaggerated. Um, if it, if it, if the, the numbers were right, if we had a great, uh, a significant percentage of homeless veterans out there, it'd, it'd be pretty easy. 
given all the resources that are available to them. Well, one of the things that came up in an interview was the idea that providing individuals with meals and gifts of money directly um, on the streets enables the problem. So especially for those younger folks who are struggling with addiction, would it be better if each city had an addiction recovery fund where anyone could donate to that instead or mental health costs, rehab, that kind of thing? Well, I think that um, you know, one thing that surprised me is that, um, again, this is this is more Denver than Aurora, although I've seen it in Aurora uh, where people, you know, bring food, water, you know, blankets, clothes to um, people in encampments experiencing homeless, which was very, very robust in Denver. So you're never to concern yourself with food or anything like that in the encampments. In fact, I eat better in the encampments than I did at the shelters. The... Um, you know, wow. so the the issue is, you know, is there, you know, how to get money for, for drugs. And unfortunately, there's a fair amount of property crime that's been associated with encampments. And um, I saw some things indirectly, but not necessarily directly. I did see buying and selling of drugs inside the encampments, uh, particularly meth, um, stealing of bicycles. I think there was a question there. I didn't see anybody steal a bicycle, but I saw bicycles kind of piled up with tarps over them uh, in Denver. So it, um, um, it seems like there there's a way to get by, um, you know, in the current system, but it's a pretty difficult lifestyle, obviously, and it's very destructive. And um, we have to, and it's, it's really challenging. We have to try and get people, convince them uh, to access services. Uh, and in the city of Aurora, we're, I've been discussing with the governor and um, our Apo County counterparts in terms of having a facility uh, in Aurora that will be along, uh, actually it will be just barely outside of our border, but we'll participate, that will be along the Fort Lyon model and that is designed to help the chronically homeless who are suffering from drug and alcohol issues and a very long-term type program and so we have um, an entire campus that it was called the Ridgeview Academy, and it was for uh, delinquent males uh, who had some kind of altercation with the law. And it was actually a campus with a charter school, with um, wow. athletic facilities, a 500-bed facility, food service, uh, classrooms, uh, administrative uh, buildings, a beautiful campus. Mm -hmm. And so it is empty now. And so our goal is to take it and convert it uh, for those people. And I do think that for the chronically homeless that aren't severely mentally ill, mm -hmm. that the biggest challenge is drugs and alcohol. And so this is this program, whether they're in an encampment or in a, a shelter, doesn't matter. Um, that to take people that want to change their behavior. And it's a very long-term program. At Fort Lyon, when I went down there with the, some of the governor's staff, people had been there for two years and were just getting ready to complete the program. And um, uh, I felt that I had confidence in them, but I just learned in talking to those people how challenging it is to break addiction. And so... We, it won't be a 500-bed facility at the end of the day. It'd probably be about, oh, maybe a 150-bed facility because the fact is that those were young males that were four to a room. <laughs> and so when we talk about 
a 500 bed facility that's really 125 rooms and so we think we can take some classrooms and create additional dormitory space uh, but we want you know individuals in rooms or maybe couples in rooms um, but not but not order room and so it will take that number down but it will be a very robust program but um, it's just such a, a I mean we just have such a hard challenge in terms of getting people convincing people that they that to, to break to try and break the addition is there a, an age cap for a program like that or anything no there's not an age cap um you know we're a participant in the program but it's really going to be mostly state run because we don't have access to medicaid dollars uh and the state does uh and so it, it um uh, we'll participate in using some of our federal dollars that are coming down through the uh, American Recovery here, uh, Program Act, ARPA. And so uh, we'll participate there. I think we're looking at three potential, um, uh, we're looking at maybe two primary facilities, uh, that being one of them for long-term uh, program. And then we're looking at emergency housing uh, in the city of Aurora um, to have a facility that I would like to see as a 24-hour facility. Um, they varied in Denver. I stayed at two different shelters in Denver. I think one was, I, it was called the Holly Center. I can't remember where it was. Mm -hmm. That was where you, um, by, run by the rescue mission under contract, both were. And that one, you went to the rescue mission for the evening meal, then you got bused there and um, pretty crowded conditions. Um, unfortunately, drug use in, in there. Mm -hmm. But um, the one, that, and, and then in the, you go back in the rescue mission for breakfast, and then they throw you out for the whole day, and then you come back in the evening. I think that they had a facility in the vicinity of, um, it was in an industrial area around 40th and Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, and that was a much better facility. That was an old warehouse. Now, that was only for men, um, but it was well-supervised. You had to go through medical, you know, had to put all your things through medical uh, metal detectors to make sure you didn't have any weapons or anything. And that was a 24-hour facility so that you didn't, you know, they didn't throw you out. Yeah. I think that's probably a, that's a better system. Um, people that were, you know, more challenged through, you know, their finances were able to either do day labor or get jobs in the in businesses around that area, then come back and stay in the shelter at night. And, um, and then we're able to, you know, to save enough. Their goal was to save enough money to get their own, to get their own apartment back. But they didn't have the kind of drug and alcohol challenges that the chronically homeless have. So, um, but I, I, I like that idea of a 24 hour facility instead of throwing people out for the day. And that, I think that's upset setting to you know when you have a shelter and you do that then it's the area around there that becomes a becomes your opponent uh because of the fact that they don't like the idea of pushing people out and then having them hang out all day waiting for the shelter to open up again for them in the evening i was wondering if you could maybe speak to a uh, kind of a specific, maybe a case study, like uh, say maybe a younger person who you know may have had some, uh, who who may have been struggling with addiction, 
but has, you know, made some steps toward, you know, maybe enrolling in certain programs or, um, you know, uh, really wants to, you know, get back on track, so to speak. I don't know if you're aware of other specific programs that have uh, a rent cost, and th which can be quite, no, quite a challenge. Well, I can only speak to what we have in Aurora. Yeah. And so in Aurora, actually, we have a Boulder-based nonprofit that runs a um, facility for us in the city of Aurora. And it's called um, the Bridge House. Uh, it's part of a ready-to-work program. And so I think but it takes people that, that want to change their behavior, that, that generally suffer from addiction, but people that could have, you know, mental health challenges, people that could, you know, have a variety of challenges. And so um, that is an office building we have. I think it might be six stories or more office building that was converted for the purpose of this program where the offices spaces are created, you know, made into dormitories. Um, the conference rooms are made into classrooms. And so you, it, it's not as, um, um, it's not quite zero tolerance. I mean, you, you have to be sober, but if you have a relapse and, you know, get back on track, you're not thrown out of the program. Whereas I think in step Denver is zero tolerance. If you, you know, have one positive year analysis or caught intoxicated in any way, you're out of the program, period. Where, you know, um, we provide all the supports for them in terms of mental health counseling, in terms of, um, you know, helping them become sober. Um, but they, and they participate in, besides, you know, aggressive case management and counseling, they participate in either work training or actual work. Um, so that's, um, I, I think that's a, a fairly successful model, but again, you have to have people, I think the challenge is having people that want to break that addiction. Um, you know, that's very hard to do. So, um, but, but I think that one, there are other, the, the one we're going to do at the Ridgegate Academy, that is strictly for, about addiction. And, uh, again, a much longer term program, a robust program. Um, the, the goal is really, just, it's, it's, there are work training components to it. And there's obviously mental health counseling. There's all those things, but the big trick is to break the addiction in that program along the Fort Lyon model is somebody, um, they, if somebody, um, breaks that sobriety, they, they're immediately removed from the program and put into some kind of detox. And, and mm -hmm. then if they finish that, then they come back to the program. See how, how they feel that it's a contagion by having somebody there, people that are trying to break addiction, that if you have somebody that, you know, fell, they, it's amazing that the, it is like an emergency thing where they remove them from the program. So we're going to be under that same model. Uh, in our program, but you, you, you can come back and people that leave the program and relapse, you know, can come back into the program on the campus. So, um, it's isolated. It's, it's way off, you know, it's, it's kind of out there nowhere, but that's on purpose, um, that we want to, the population to be isolated so that the temptations are less. Right. Nice.
Nice. Having had a glimpse from the ground level, if there were things you wish employees work or who work for the shelters, social services and policymakers within the city and state could come to an understanding about, what would that be? Um, what would be the big picture piece of the puzzle that would be beneficial for everyone to keep in mind? I think there should be required case management. Um, you know, when I accessed the three different shelters, that it was a choice. And I chose, obviously, not to do it. Um, but the fact is, but it shouldn't be a choice. I mean, people should uh, participate in case management to really to, to begin to connect with services. I mean, in each one, each shelter, there are a lot of services that are offered. But I would say most of the people don't take advantage of them. But I think if they had case, if they were required to participate in case management, um, for in, in terms of staying there, I mean, again, I think, and that's the advantage of a 24-hour shelter probably versus a shelter where you throw people out in the day, is I think you have a better opportunity to work with them. So I think moving to the 24-hour shelter model, uh, having um, mandatory case management, um, I think you know to where you know, and I think we have to get more aggressive about requiring people to participate in programs. Um, otherwise, you're just otherwise you're just warehousing people. And I think that I just don't know how you're at the end of the day really helping them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more intensive uh, in terms of spending if you're going to help people uh, in the short run, obviously. But I think you save a lot of money in the long run uh, by doing that. So, you know, I would that 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 would be the the shelter that I would like to see in Aurora, is a is a twenty four hour shelter, uh, kind of open like the one I saw, in um, well open but but people were spaced apart, uh, unlike the the Holly uh, Center where I where it's just a place to sleep, it was just you know packed you know double bunked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bunk to bunk to bunk to bunk. And this is during the pandemic. Um, but I do think that um, I, I really, I, mean, I think the, the the shelter that I that I look for for a model, except for I'd have more aggressive case management, was the one on 38th or 40th in Colorado in that vicinity, you know, that um, was a former warehouse, um, had food service uh, there, had shower facilities there, laundry facilities there, um, you know, uh, with bunks uh, appropriately spaced out where you could secure your belongings, um, security uh, to make sure that there were no fights or anything. Um, I, I think it was a very well run. And I liked, again, the, the idea that was you could leave. You had to be back. I'm trying to remember what hour you had to be back. I think you had to be back by 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening. And if you weren't back by then, then, then you gave up your bed. Um, but um, I think that's a... And so I, I think there's a model for, I, we just need to be more aggressive, I think, about helping people. And some of that's going to be tough love and, and requiring people to participate in programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I understand you went and um, when, when you decided to go undercover, you went into it, you were questioning whether the 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 banning the the campsites were, was necessary. And after after the experience, you decided against banning the camps. Um, can you share with us? That, because we uh, didn't have the money. Um, you, when you, you you do that, you have to provide an alternative for them. At that time, we didn't have the resources to do to that. Now, if you look at the federal money that's come down, 
that we have access to now, we do have the resources to provide an alternate location for them. And so it's a, um, so I introduced it at a time, actually last summer, where in advance of the discussions that were going to come down about how to spend the federal dollars. And so the reason why I, the, the timing was, um, so you figure I was done on January 2nd, uh, didn't introduce until August. Uh, because of the fact that the American uh, Recovery Plan Act had passed. And so I wanted to make sure that um, dollars were prioritized accordingly uh, to to address the issue. And then this is this is these are all one time dollars. So they can really effectively only be used for capital construction. And so it, it's so, you know, uh, we're under um, discussion now as to you know, should we buy a building and, and remodel it? Should we build from scratch? Um, but at least we're having those discussions now, uh, as well as the Ridgeview Academy discussion. So, um, so I, I so that I do think we I, I do believe in a camping ban. I don't I don't believe you should have people camping anywhere, and I believe you should, um, you know, require them to be in a designated uh, place where there's sanitation, there's food, there's water. Um, and you can uh, help them. Um, I'm concerned about, uh, so Denver's ahead of us, so I can look and see what Denver's doing and sometimes what not to do or what to do. Um, obviously, what to do is a 24-hour facility that I mentioned to you. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a good facility with more aggressive case management, but the I'm concerned about the safe camping sites in Denver and that um, that they're facilitating drug use, the very thing that we want to re get these people away from, and so uh, and, and not changing behaviors. And so um, I'm going to want to take a tour of one of those facilities. And um, there's a consulting group that's doing work for Denver that is said that they would share some of the preliminary findings with me about what the challenges are. So I really think a well-run shelter would be better than expanding safe camping options at this time. Nice. Have you had a chance to speak with other <clears throat> mayors around the country, like Ben McAdams from Salt Lake County, Utah? Um, I know Maureen O'Connor did this many, a, a couple, few decades ago, but um, if so, was there anything about your experiences that resonated among you all? You know, I have looked at and spoken to different groups of mayors and uh, have looked at other programs uh, and spoken to some other mayors around the country. But, um, you know, I think my own experiences really resonated in terms of, you know, that where I felt, you know, going in and where I felt going out. I think um, having, you know, been on the street for a week uh, and, and talked to as many people as I could, and I can tell you how difficult that was because um, particularly um, – you know, probably in the shelter, it was, I think, a little easier than in the encampments. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think in the encampments, it was very, I'd go through, I'd try to turn to 20 people before somebody would talk to me, uh, people living in the encampments. Um, it was a little easier in the shelters um, to talk to people. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's such a harder problem than I ever thought it would be. And it's gonna be, 
very challenging. I mean, it's part mental health, it's part economic, it's part cultural, uh, and, and it's very complicated in terms of different pieces of it require, you know, different uh, courses of action in order to resolve. Um, but, uh, um, you know, so I think we're going to try different things, uh, you know, and see what works and what doesn't work. I do think we need to uh, we need to provide uh, minimum services for everybody, irrespective of you know who they are and what they've done and uh, their, what lifestyle choices they make. But I really do believe that we need to focus the resources on people that want to change, that and knowing and know understand that's a that's very hard to do for them to do, and. Uh, and it's it's not going to be a short program. And like I mentioned, the Fort Lyon, we're working the one um, facility that we're working on um, is model on the Fort Lyon model. And again, when I went there, um, two years was not uncommon. So if you could jump in a time machine and go undercover again, um, would you do anything differently? Well, I'd probably spend more time in Aurora. I mean, I just, you know, just, I walked, you know, all the way, I started in Denver, walked all the way from Denver back to Aurora, and it was way out east of I-225, and uh, found myself all alone in an encampment that I thought, you know, I had been there like the day before, and I should have checked. And uh, so I think um, they're very small in Aurora. Um, I, you know... I think the mental health piece is so hard. It's the hardest piece is the mental health piece. And I don't mean people that, um, I mean, I'm subtracting people who suffer from addiction. I guess you could call that mental health. But there were people that I met in the, in people in, in people in the shelters who were mentally ill, and I feel sorry for it, but at least they had the ability to navigate. There were functional enough to be able to access the shelters. But the people that I've met that are mentally ill, that are living in encampments, that actually they're not in encampments, they're out on their own. They're, they tend, because what they do, the, so I'll give you two examples that of people that I've met doing, just doing, not, not during the week that I was homeless, but just on the weekly outreach, sometimes I'll go out with our outreach team and um, to, look for people that are homeless and to offer them services and things like that. And the most chilling thing, I think, is people that are really, truly mentally ill. And they're on their own. They, they're always isolated. And they, they just, you know, live very difficult lives. And you, and you, and it's, it's so obvious the extent of their illness. So in both instances, actually, there were young women. You know, well, one was maybe 40s, one was 20s. I would say, mm-hmm. and and I, I again, I'm not a mental health patient, but I would imagine that they were schizophrenic. Now there are medications that can stabilize them, but I don't. You, we can't force somebody unless it, it's a pretty high bar to be able to force somebody to mentally ill into treatment. And so that I, we talked both of them into coming with us to the day research, what we call the day resource center to access services. Mm-hmm. But you could, when we were in route, there was just a stream of consciousness that 
they you would maybe talk to them, maybe they'd understand the first sentence of what you were saying, they'd respond to that, and then they'd go off in different directions that were totally disconnected. And the, the, that's the way their mind worked or didn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the saddest one was um, I was out with the police one night and got a call from a Walgreens, which was in the vicinity of oh Chambers and um, Hamden Road. Uh, Chambers and Hamden in the city of Aurora. There's a Walgreens there. They said, oh, you know, we feel really bad about this young lady. She's staying. We have a loading dock that's covered. And she's kind of, and it was cold, and she was staying, hiding in the loading dock. And they were concerned that she was starting fires to stay warm. And, you know, so we went out there. And she was just so dirty. I mean, she was just, she was, Caucasian, but black. I mean, just this black. And that you would try to, you know, she was so hard to talk to because she could just lose consciousness and go off in some direction. But we talked her into going with us to the the day resource center and then the shelter. And so it was hard to talk to her. So we get there and she goes, Aren't you staying? <laughs> and so I talked to the staff. I said, please watch her, you know, to, to see and help her because I think she's just going to walk. And um, so they said, yes, you know, they would they would help her and everything. But I, who knows what I mean? People are so ill, they don't know that they're ill. And uh, but she was pretty emaciated, pretty thin. And but very I mean, so the people like that just, you know, lead such wretched lives and. You know, I just don't know what the solution is there. Um, to I mean, if you could, if you you know, can put them on a seventy-two hour hold, but usually that's a pretty high bar, and usually they have to be a threat to themselves or others. And she was, you know, I guess you might be able to argue that she was a threat to herself. Yeah, I don't know, but um, so I unfortunately I didn't follow up to see what what happened to her because we went out. My purpose was to. Uh, go with the police and, and, you know, see how they were doing in terms of addressing uh, crime issues. Mm-hmm. But there are people like that out there. Well, uh, that's very hard. That was um, one of the things that uh, that I had heard was a problem with uh, some cases that were uh, that did suffer from mental illness is that they would get the medications. They would be sent to one of those mm-hmm. facilities for a 72 hour hold. Right. And then they'd start feeling better and then they'd have their medication with them and it would only last so long. They'd be given like a 30 day supply. But the, there were two things that, that came up um, with different cases. One, they would either get mugged and the, the mm. medication was then stolen from them sure. or, or two, like after that 30 days, they couldn't get yeah. to a physician to then refill it. And so then they'd start all over again. And then there'd be this cycle of yeah. they'd be stable for a little while. Something would happen to their meds and yeah. then they'd end up in another facility. Yeah. No, it's, a, med- yeah. it's just hard. It's just so hard. That's, that's a part. That'd be the hardest piece to, to work on is people. To, yeah. That- that are mentally ill and, um, you know, that, um, I mean, they really need in that, you know, if they're not willing to take their medications, a lot of times that, that they'll just, I don't know, they're pretty stubborn about, uh, you know, and, um, but I think that 
That's really hard. I mean, I, the reality is I think they need to be institutionalized to protect themselves. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, but that's, I don't see any other choice there. You know, I think that if they, again, if they, I think you're right, if they're, uh, first of all, people can prey upon them. Um, those people, yeah. You know, um, and then I think secondly, that um, they're just unable to take care of themselves. And I and I I think that that's the issue with it. I mean, either they refuse to take the drugs, or the supply runs out, or they get stolen from yeah. them. Wow, uh, Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman, it was such an honor to have this conversation with you today. I know this is a very complex issue, and uh, we thank you so much for your time. And uh, you know, we'd love to have you back. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you okay, so much. take care. We hope you've been enjoying our series In and Out of the Fray. We conclude our series this Thursday, March 17, 2022, with some responses and final thoughts. We'd also like to invite our listeners to send in their comments about any part of the series by calling our voice message line at 303-731-6104 or emailing smtpodcasters at gmail.com. Your comments may be included in our series finale or in future episodes. Please stay tuned for new episodes on Thursdays as our spring season continues through April 7th. As always, thanks for listening.